today, the title of the hearing today is Protecting the Integrity of College Athletics. To preserve the integrity of competition in college athletics, we need one universal and fair national standard on NIL. Our schools support and share the committee's interest in protecting the integrity and fairness of college sports. The bottom line is I do worry about the integrity of the sport. Guardrails are crucial to protecting the integrity of the game and student-athletes from overzealous boosters who may want to buy their way to their school's next national championship. And it, it's that integrity that uh, I uh, worry about the decline of. Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a real quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And then I've also got some stuff in a blog that I started a little over two and a half years ago. And the name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right. So today is Thursday, July 29th, 2021. And it is the day after a Big 12 Conference Commissioner Bob Bowlesby came out of hiding to launch a Molotov cocktail into the ESPN break room. And on so many levels, this story, again, just falls into the category of you can't make this stuff up. And I'm going to talk a little bit in this episode about what Bowlesby had to say and what I think its significance is. But I'm going to do that briefly. I really want to use this episode to transition and refocus back into some of the structural issues. I really got caught up a little bit in this realignment drama, and I'll be paying attention to it, but so much of this has been there, done that. And if you're familiar with the history of realignment from the first round uh, that really covered the mid-1990s into about 2012, all of these scenarios, all of these dynamics, all of the finger-pointing and the blame laying and the excuse making are really familiar. And we're not seeing anything we haven't seen before. It just feels new because we have a whole new generation of sports consumers who probably aren't fluent enough in the history of big time college sports, particularly big time college football, to understand how this fits in to the broad mosaic of the power shifts and the power plays and the infighting that has always been a part of big-time college sports. So in, in this transition, I really want to get back to talking about what's going to happen in Congress, because I really think that's the most important thing that's laying out there that nobody's talking about. And one of the things I've tried to do in this podcast is really stay focused on what I think is important and not get caught up in the emotion of these external events. And I really want to stay focused on what's going to happen in the Senate. And that's right around the corner. And one of the things that has not changed throughout all of the insanity of the most recent chapters in the perfect storm, going back to the Austin decision and then the the nil debacle, and now this conference realignment thing, is that the NCAA and the Power Five are still focused on getting federal protections and immunities that will move them closer, inch them closer to the iron throne of college sports regulation. And that's still their goal. And we don't really know 
what that's going to look like. So some of these things that are happening right now are important. And as I said in my last episode, I think that this sense of division within the Power Five is really important because they have understood all along, going back two years when this whole campaign in the Senate began, that a unified front among the Power Five and then between the Power Five and the NCAA was critical to getting what they wanted in the Senate. So they've created some problems for themselves, given the timing of this story, but their ultimate goal hasn't changed. And so what I want to do in the next few episodes is go back to the timeline and walk through, maybe in a more summary way, the important events at the beginning of the perfect storm, starting really in 2019, to really establish how the narratives that are going to be carried into the next Senate debate have been framed, how deeply they are etched into the thinking among the decision makers, and whether all this instability that's that's occurred just in the last month will influence how those decision makers think about it. Will they rethink those narratives? How much momentum will those narratives have? And who is going to really be in the position of power in getting their message to the senators? And when I'm talking about the senators here, I'm talking about the Senate Commerce Committee. And I've talked at length in other episodes about the composition of that committee, its importance in college sports, and the uh, importance of Maria Cantwell, who's the chair of that committee. And it's the committee has 28 members and 14 are Republican, 14 are Democrat. And Cantwell has been very clear that she wants to do something on college sports reform, but it's run through this name, image, and likeness narrative that has been defined from the very beginning by the NCAA, the NCAA working group, and NCAA lobbyist lawyers, and NCAA friendly senators who have called the shots all along. And Cantwell's picking this thing up really 80% into the conversation. And she is, I think, influenced by that narrative and looking at how she has approached these issues since she became the committee chair in January of 2021. It appears to me that she's bought into a lot of the thinking of the narrative setters in 2020. And that's a problem for the athletes. And that's a problem, I think, for the proponents of the Athletes' Bill of Rights. So there are some important and interesting dynamics that are going to reveal themselves pretty soon here. And they're as consequential as anything that is uh, making the headlines right now. So part of that analysis is going to include a compare and contrast between the bills that have been introduced in the Senate. The Senate's really the only player here. There's the that Gonzalez Cleaver bill. I don't even know if it's Cleaver anymore. <laughs> but and I'll talk about that in other episodes. But this has really been a Senate show. And the NCAA clearly wants to get something out of the Senate and then they can sell it in the House. But the Senate Commerce Committee is going to determine the future of college sports, regardless of what happens with conference realignment. Because again, the Power Five and the NCAA still have substantial common ground in trying to get as many federal protections and immunities as they can to be able to go forward and whatever the new marketplace is going to look like without having to worry about federal courts, without having to worry about state legislatures, and without having to worry about athletes forming unions. And those are the three things that have been the centerpieces of their Iron Throne campaign for the regulation of college sports from the very beginning. So in this compare and contrast, I think I'm going to emphasize two bills in the Senate. The first is Roger Wicker's bill. 
that he introduced in December of 2020. And now this is after the election, before there's been a flip because of the Georgia special elections. The Republicans are still in control of the Senate. And Roger Wicker is the chair of the Senate Commerce Committee, this very same committee that's going to weigh in on college sports here in a, in a couple months. And that Wicker bill is NCAA down the line. And it's my belief that Wicker introduced that bill in December, really as a uh, last-ditch attempt to try to get something done before the Democrats took over in the White House and before the Georgia special elections. Although I'll say at the time, I don't think many folks were predicting that both of those Georgia seats were going to go to the Democrats and there would be a flip in the Senate. But I think Wicker understood, and certainly the Power Five understood, that time was of the essence. And so he put this bill out there. And it's really uh, interesting. I did a long post on this bill when it first came out. And I titled it uh, Roger Wicker's Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Legislation. And I'll link to that uh, post when I get to talking about that bill. But Wicker's bill was really interesting because it cleverly disguised its true intention. And you really had to pick it apart. I spent hours analyzing that bill and trying to bring all of its constituent parts together into a coherent theme. And the way that it was drafted, it had this third-party commission. A lot of these bills do that. They have these third-party commissions that are going to be in charge of making these decisions. And the the purpose of, of that approach is to create the illusion that there's a truly independent body that's going to be determining what the nil marketplace looks like. But when you look at how those commissions are formed, who's qualified to serve, and what values they are required to rely on in forming any policies— you see that this is nothing more than warmed over NCAA. And the way that Wicker did his bill, all of the duties of this board had to run through the principle of amateurism. So the principle of amateurism was very cleverly brought into that bill, and you could read right through it and not appreciate its importance. And that's true with a lot of these bills, but it was uh, really a bad, horrible, (laughs) terrible, no good piece of legislation. And I'll, I'll break that down because I think it was really more direct than this other NCAA friendly bill that I'm going to talk about. And that is the Jerry Moran bill that came out in February of 2021. And remember, February 2021, we've already had the Georgia special elections. The administration's turned over. Congress has turned over. We have Democrats in the White House. We have Democrats in control of the Senate. And it's a a different day. And Moran's bill is really interesting. And Moran's role is interesting because I think he's had Maria Cantwell's ear. And he and Wicker are way ahead of her on the substance of these issues. They've both drafted legislation. They have altered their approach, their strategic approach, to accommodate the political wins. And so with Moran's bill in February of 2021, he takes a much different approach that on its face appears to be more athlete-friendly. But again, when you break it down and you really have to pick this thing apart and look at how he structures the decision-making process. And he very cleverly disguises what the decision-making authority really looks like. But when you break it down, it's just a backdoor for the NCAA to come in and have iron-fisted control over the regulation of college sports. And so, you know, from the very beginning 
of this podcast, I tried to make it very clear that from the NCAA Power 5 standpoint, from the in-system stakeholder beneficiary standpoint, the ultimate issue in this entire athletes' rights debate and their litigation campaign and their campaign in Congress and in their public relations campaign was really not about whether or how much athletes should be paid. The question was who gets to decide. So a crucial component of analyzing these bills is who ultimately has the authority to make decisions, whether it relates to nil or whether it relates to any broader aspects of the regulation of college sports. And with the Republican-based approach, with Wicker, with uh, Rubio, I think Rubio was in June of 2020, Wicker was December of 2020, and Moran is February of 2021. But with all three of those pieces of legislation. And then another piece of legislation that the NCAA introduced under the cover of darkness and still won't talk about publicly. The NCAA was going to be the decision maker one way or another, in one form or another, through one disguised entity or another. And that is so so important because that is still the NCAA's goal. So I'm going to use the Wicker and Moran bills as templates for explaining the status quo side, the Republican side, that has defined the narrative because they've been at this a lot longer than the proponents of the Athletes' Bill of Rights or Maria Cantwell. And I'm not going to talk about the Rubio bill because that was so obviously in the tank for the NCAA that I don't even know if the Republicans uh, could put that forward with a straight face as a go-to bill. But the Wicker bill and the Moran bill have been held up here as viable options. And this Moran bill in particular has been structured to, I think, create the illusion that the Republicans are interested in a bipartisan solution on athletes' rights that go beyond nil. And I don't really see that. And then I'm going to contrast those two bills with the Athletes' Bill of Rights that was sponsored by Senators Blumenthal and Booker, both Democrats, and they've both been on the forefront of this athletes' rights debate. And Their bill was introduced, I want to say December 17th of 2020. It was in December of 2020. It was after the Wicker Bill was introduced. And you're talking about just a fundamentally different approach to regulation and federal legislation in college sports. And so much attention has been focused on the Republican narratives in this whole debate because the NCAA was so successful from the very beginning of framing those issues. And in any discussion, if you have the ability to frame the initial terms of the debate, you are a long way to winning the debate. And that's true in this discussion about reform that may benefit college athletes, whether it's nil or something broader than nil. So this Athletes' Bill of Rights, I don't think, has gotten the attention that it deserves. And it is a much more viable piece of legislation now because of what's happened in the last month. And at the very least, the Republicans aren't going to be able to shout it down as some ridiculously impractical outlier that has no chance of passage. Because I think when you actually compare these two sets of bills, you can begin to see that this athlete's bill of rights is well thought out. It makes sense. And 
it directly challenges some of the fundamental assumptions about the NCAA Power 5 status quo. And those were assumptions that were unchallengeable prior to Austin and then prior to the NCAA basically waving the white flag on nil and now with the infighting in the Power 5. So those three things now give life to the Athletes' Bill of Rights. And I think when you do a critical examination of these three bills and compare and contrast them, you see just how dishonest the NCAA Power 5 approach has been because there's very little talk about substantive change in these bills. It's all about getting the federal protections and immunities, and then we'll worry about uh, whether we're going to offer any meaningful nil benefits or make any other changes that would actually benefit athletes because the goal here is to protect the NCAA and the in-system financial stakeholders first. And then we'll talk about doing a little something for the athletes down the line. But if the NCAA and Power Five get what they want from the Senate, then they will be untouchable. They won't have to do anything for athletes. So that's why this Athletes Bill of Rights is so important. And when you also do a compare and contrast of who gets to decide, you really see just how NCAA protective these Republican-sponsored bills are. Because when you look at the people who are eligible to sit on these commissions or this federal corporation or whatever the entity is, they are NCAA Power Five insiders. You have, you know, representatives from national athletics associations. That means the NCAA. And these bills also explicitly require representation from athletic conferences, athletic administrators, and in-system insiders, the very people who created the problems that these bills are supposed to be addressing. They have the dominant seat at the table and they are calling the shots. And then when you look at the Athletes Bill of Rights and the entity that it sets up and the Moran Bill and the Bill of Rights are similar in that they both use the quote-unquote federal corporation as the third-party entity that will have frontline responsibility for actually implementing specific recommendations and policies and enforcement. But when you look at the Athletes' Bill of Rights and who is allowed to sit on the board of directors for this federal corporation, it specifically excludes the very people that the Republican bills require. So the Blumenthal-Booker Bill, the Athletes' Bill of Rights, would prohibit NCAA insiders or conference insiders or university insiders, if you've served in any of those roles currently or or in the past, you cannot sit on the board of directors for the corporation that is uh, envisioned by the Athletes' Bill of Rights. And that's the way it acknowledges the obvious reality that all of those stakeholders have a massive disqualifying conflicts of interest. (laughs) And the fact that that issue hasn't been on the table is really frustrating to me because I don't think the senators have focused on that. So I have some kind of broad themes that are captured by these bills. And, And one of them is who gets to decide. And you have to really look at the details. The devil is in the details on that single question. And then transparency issues, they're on opposite sides of the earth there. And then in terms of what the athletes are entitled to, they're on opposite ends of the earth. And the Athletes' Bill of Rights is comprehensive. The Republican proposals are narrowly limited to name, image, and likeness in the benefits that they offer, but they are as broad as they can be in the protections and immunities that the NCAA and Power Five get.
So and I've talked about this before as well, but that's another thing that we're going to be looking at. And then looking at uh, some of the other things, non-name, image, and likeness related things that the Athletes' Bill of Rights puts on the table and that the Republicans, I think, are trying to latch on to through this Moran bill to make it look like they care about that stuff, but they really don't. And that's why you, you really have to break down this Moran bill to look at how shallow it actually is, despite things that in the bill on their face look like they might be beneficial to the athletes. They really aren't. So that's going to be an important analysis. And understanding the differences between those two types of bills is really important. But perhaps more important is what are we going to see in terms of where the senators are coming from now? Because the last hearing was held on June 17th. And since June 17th, some really important things have happened. It seems like a year ago, but, you know, it was really just five, six weeks ago. You had the Austin Supreme Court decision on June 21st. You had the NCAA all over the map on what it was going to do on name, image, and likeness. And then seven hours and 40 minutes before July 1st, they threw together some interim policy, which really makes a mockery of their claims for having this two-year process on name, image, and likeness rules changes. They weren't rules changes. They just waved the white flag because they had no choice. So we have that. And then we have now this conference realignment stuff, which just shows the underbelly of the business of big-time college sports. And it's, this is going to be an ugly spectacle. So that's just a preview of where I'm going to go here. But talking about this ugly spectacle, the reason that I titled this episode the quote-unquote integrity of college sports. And you heard the montage at the beginning, and those were clips from recent uh, Senate testimony. And then there have been six hearings in the Senate since February of 2020, and I just got the low-hanging fruit. But that narrative is just woven into every aspect of the way that the NCAA and Power Five have pitched the athletes' rights movement. Yeah, we want to do some good things for these athletes, but we have to preserve the integrity of college sports. <laughs> and, you know, that Lindsey Graham hearing on July, what was that, July 22nd of 2021 in the Judiciary Committee, which he chaired before the flip in the Senate. It was titled, the you know, Protecting the Integrity of College Sports. And I just wanted to put that theme out there because what we're going to see in this conference realignment mudslinging is the truth of the business model of big-time college sports. This business enterprise that the NCAA and Power Five are selling is one that's just uh, soaking in integrity. <laughs> and the collegiate model and the student-athlete and amateurism is really nothing more than a bare-knuckled fistfight over power, prestige, social currency, loyalty, money, and media exposure. And when push comes to shove, that's what it's all about. And I think what you saw with Bob Bowlesby's attack on ESPN was really a desperate move here. And I want to talk about that just a little bit and then tie it back into this overall theme of the integrity of college sports because we're going to have a front row seat here to the absence of integrity in college sports. This is going to be just a disgusting window into the soul of big-time college sports and higher education writ large because you're going to be hearing from university presidents, you're going to be hearing from chancellors, you're going to be hearing from governing boards, and what you're going to hear has absolutely nothing to do 
with institutional integrity or academic integrity or the integrity of higher education. So you, you might want to put away your university's mission statement. Don't look. You don't want to have that standing side by side with what's going to play out here because that mission statement is not going to be worth the paper it's written on when you are looking at how the institutional stakeholders are going to sling mud to uh, position themselves to get all these things that higher education really wants in the 21st century. And it's all about the brand. It's all about the image. It's all about the exposure. And it is all about the money. And what is transpiring now is really going to be a Wizard of Oz moment where the curtain just gets pulled back on the wizard and he's going to be exposed. And that's happening in some interesting ways right now. And uh, this Bob Bowlesby thing, his uh, accusations against ESPN are significant in that regard because so much of what big-time college sports is selling is an illusion. It is just an illusion. The power actors, the Power Five conferences, the Power Five schools and the conference commissioners and the university presidents have been rolling along since the Power Five came into shape in 2012, and everything's been great. They had that great bull market that I've talked a lot about that ended with a shocking suddenty because of COVID. There was every belief going into the COVID era that the Power Five were still unified, and so you had this illusion of unity that played into the illusion of the integrity of college sports. And floating above that is is this sense of an alternate reality that when consumers enter the college sports zone, they just check their common sense and their critical thinking at the front door and they go into this amusement park or casino-like mentality where they're in an environment where they don't have to worry about things making sense. They don't have to worry about rational decisions. They've given in to the irrational and the emotional. And that's part of the attraction of college sports and these uh, connections to our institutions and to the people in them and the way that we perceive those people because we want to believe all those things. I had an interesting conversation with my wife this morning about that. She's not a real big sports fan. And we met at Duke. And I mentioned before, I played basketball for Duke. And I think she went to one Duke basketball game. And that was my last game as a senior on senior night and she came late (laughs) but one of the things i I have always loved about her was that she really wasn't uh, susceptible to all that kind of emotional stuff in the college sports world i don't think it makes a whole lot of sense to her but she suffers my conversations occasionally on what i'm working on and i was talking to her just about the influence that espn has had and i was trying to explain this bowlsby thing and how espn has its finger in so many pies that if, if there's a, a shakeup in college sports they're involved in it and particularly with college football and i said a couple of episodes ago that they're just swimming in conflicts of interest but it also gives them enormous power and i was talking about this dynamic in, in college sports I, I have friends who have espn on in their house literally 24 They never turn it off. They've brought that reality into their space, and that's all they live. 
I mean, that's their life. And ESPN's done a very good job of kind of fostering that mentality. And it's one where you just suspend rational thinking. And when Bowlesby made these accusations against ESPN, ESPN kind of pulled back on the coverage. They did do an article saying that Bowlesby had made the allegations. But they're in a real tough spot here because they portray themselves as a purveyor of objective sports news. But boy, those conflicts of interest just are so deeply baked into their business model that you have to view what you get from ESPN on the business side. When they're talking about the business of college sports, you have to view that with some skepticism, but most people don't because when they enter into this college sports zone, they don't have to worry about those little details, you know, those conflicts of interest. Who cares? They're my people. And they market to personalities and all the things that successful businesses do to attract and retain viewers and consumers. And ESPN has been brilliant at that. But you're in the funhouse. So I was talking to my wife and I said, it's like going to Disneyland or you walk into the amusement park and you just suspend reality and you can convince yourself that is reality. And the same is true in a casino. When you go to a casino, there's a reason that there aren't any windows. There's a reason that there aren't any clocks. There's a reason that people are bringing you free drinks and free food. And most of them are attractive people. (laughs) They, They want to get you into a kind of alternate reality that they define and control. So that whole mentality makes no sense to my wife. She's in academic medicine and she sees things in a very rational way and she's not susceptible to these emotional plays and she can look at them with this kind of Spock-like rationality and say, that's stupid. (laughs) So I was uh, explaining to her this Bob Bowlesby thing and and his accusations and I was telling her about all the pies that uh, ESPN was in and with Bowlesby, she just said, well, that's silly. Why didn't he know? He was the guy sitting in the captain's chair. Why didn't he know what was going on? (laughs) Boom, she nailed it. Then I was talking about uh, the ESPN syndrome and all of their interests in all these college football products. And she said, is that legal? Can you do that? (laughs) Just getting right to the point. But when you look at what Bob Bowlesby is doing right now, and it's an act of desperation because You have to believe that he's consulted the other university presidents and chancellors to come up with some response here because he did get caught asleep at the wheel. There's no question about that in my judgment. And he has to explain himself now and his $4 million salary and all his chest pounding over the last, I don't know, year and a half in this campaign in the Senate in in public relations. And again, he was always at the ready with his thoughts on how college sports ought to be run. (laughs) He's just getting played in his own backyard. And it's just, again, just stunning because this is probably the most central function that he serves, and that is to keep his conference intact, to keep it moving forward, to keep it competitive. And the other Power Five conferences are competitors. And I think he just got lost in some of this false unity that was spun around the autonomy movement because autonomy legislation, that legislation that came out in 2013, 2014, required Power Five collusion or cooperation, whatever you want to call it. So they had to act together in order to agree to legislation getting passed within the authority they were granted. There were certain specific areas where they had the authority to legislate, but they had to agree on it. 
So there was a sense of cooperation and collusion and the market was great and everybody was happy. And then they're going through this Senate campaign and they're all reading from the same page and they're having secret meetings in December of 2019 where everybody's patting themselves on the back. We got this thing under control and we have our strategy and we're going to execute it. And then they're writing joint letters to the Senate and the House. And then they're going out and testifying in, in Congress. The conference commissioners are and everything just looks great, right? But underneath that, and I said this in the last episode, is a historical reality where they are just in a competitive cauldron where there are no rules and there are no loyalties and there are no gentlemen's agreements. That's just the reality of the business that the Power Five are in. And the fact that Bowlesby seems surprised that the SEC was doing what was best for the SEC is just, again, just shocking to me. And in terms of their market competition, they've still made it win-win. And in the Prisoner's Dilemma episode, I think it was the third one, I talked about the economics analysis that the plaintiff's experts did in the Austin case to talk about what the business model really looked like. And that was Dan Rasher and Roger Null, who are really regarded as leading experts on college sports, and they testified for the athletes. But in Rasher's report, he looked at the Power Five as a sub-cartel, and they operate as a five-member group And in many areas, they're required to cooperate. And and this autonomy legislation is one of them. But his broader point was that they're really competitors and that the NCAA had virtually zero involvement in any aspect of the business of big-time college football except for setting the price of labor, fixing the cost of labor at the value of an athletic scholarship. And he compared the NCAA's role with big-time college football to the NFL's role with professional football. And the NFL controls every aspect of that business, every aspect. The NCAA controls virtually zero aspects of uh, big-time college football, except for that one big thing that was the glue that bound them. But Rasha was saying that outside of that, they're competing in the market. They are competitors. And all of these contracts that they do, they are competing with each other. And for the most part, The market has worked well and everybody's found their level and everybody was making money. And the Big 12 has a relationship with ESPN and they had a conference network. It kind of went out of business and ESPN picked up the residual content and they still have televised some stuff and they are a joint venture with the University of Texas in the Longhorn Network. And then they have all these agreements with the ACC and the SEC, and they're everywhere. ESPN is everywhere. But everybody was pretty happy, and nobody, nobody in the Power Five was going to turn on their media partners. That was an unwritten rule that was inviolate. You do not turn on your media partners, in part because they are feeding you. That's where the money's coming from, but also because they have enormous influence because they have a megaphone that's bigger than yours is, and ESPN has the biggest megaphone in the sports industry. So for Bob Bowlesby to accuse ESPN of conspiracy and fraud and deception and of interference with business relationships and interference with contract, and those allegations were pretty serious, that's a big deal because you just don't do that. 
So, and I don't think it's coincidental that ESPN's kind of backed off of its coverage of this realignment wave because after those accusations, I don't think it's being viewed as a neutral news source covering itself. So, and it never is. That's my point. But when everything's good and everyone's happy, we just buy the ticket and go into the amusement park. We go into Disneyland and just submit. (laughs) That's the consumer relationship to sports products. And it's not just ESPN. I'm saying ESPN because that's the story right now. And they are the biggest market player in college sports and particularly college football. But this also could open some interesting doors to peek into what is really happening behind the scenes in the sports entertainment industry. And I haven't done research on this, but in my recollection, I think this is the first time that a major ESPN partner has pointed the finger at them as the bad actor and threatened litigation against them. Maybe that's happened before. I don't know. But under these circumstances, given the gravity of the allegations and the importance of the issues here to the structure of college football, if there's litigation, there's no telling what that's going to look like. And I'll just say that these media broadcast outlets, not just ESPN and all its entities, but the major networks and Turner and Fox and all of the media broadcast outlets, the major media broadcast outlets that do contracts for college sports programming, their business is very off the books. It's Byzantine, and they keep their cards very close to their vest. And I talked about this a little bit when I was analyzing the Austin case. But in the litigation in the district court, where they're doing the fact-finding, and they're in what's called discovery, where you get to subpoena documents and request documents and take depositions and all that stuff, you have some information and documents that are more important than others. And these media broadcast contracts are so, so important in these antitrust cases that challenge the NCAA's business model. And the NCAA is a party to a holy host of contracts there. And the Power Five are a party to, I don't know, many, many contracts. And the sports media outlets get really nervous when that information is subject to discovery in a federal lawsuit and they don't want anybody to see it. Because number one, there's a legitimate concern about confidential information and I don't know, I don't think you would call it a trade secret, but they want to be able to protect their business information. They have a legitimate claim in that. But more importantly, I don't think they want people to understand exactly how this business operates and how incestuous it is at that level, at the kind of buying and selling level in the marketplace. So these companies, all these companies intervened in Austin. They did the same thing in O'Bannon to prevent their information from being made public. And the parties agreed, I think, by stipulation to place them under what's called a protective order, which prevents their release to third parties and their use is restricted and in the litigation. And at one point, I think I did this for a post, not for a podcast episode, but I was looking at how many attorneys were in the docket in that Austin case, because I mean, it was like an army of lawyers, most of them for the NCAA and the Power Five, and then all these affiliate interests that intervened for the sole purpose of protecting their information. But something like 20% of all the attorneys in that docket were non-party media broadcast outlets and mega conglomerate sports entertainment behemoths who came in to protect the information. 
There's <laughs> a big list. And that's an important thing to understand because we really don't know what the hell these deals look like. We don't know how much money is in the system. And when people throw all these numbers out, it's 15 billion, it's uh, 20 billion. I don't think anybody really knows. And unless you have access to all these contracts, there's really no way to know. And you get selective leaks and you have some of the actors providing the broad parameters of a deal and you get a number. But again, you don't know how much money is actually moving because you'll never get that level of detail. So in trying to analyze what's happening here and all of these pies that ESPN has their finger in, you're only getting the information that ESPN wants you to know. And because the Big 12 is uh, pointing the finger in a way that suggests to me that litigation is a viable option, who knows what might happen here, what might turn up. But the Big 12 is turning on the cartel here. (laughs) And not because they're trying to steal profits from the cartel, but because they're being kicked out, (laughs) essentially. They're being squeezed out. And that was really Bowlesby's complaint. But you know, again, do you blame ESPN? ESPN uh, has its fingers in all these pies. You've been benefiting from their relationship. That's the other thing my wife pointed out. She said, isn't the Big 12 getting money from ESPN? Why are they complaining? And that's a good point, right? And that's just the nature of big-time college sports and the incestuous nature of big-time college sports and this gravy train that the Power Five have been on since realignment, the first realignment. So I don't think Bowlesby or the Big 12 are going to be very sympathetic litigants if they try to go after ESPN. And they're part of the whole business model. And you can't be part of it and benefit from it. And then when something doesn't turn your way, you turn on it in kind of a vicious way. So we'll see. Look, this is a business. ESPN's in the business to make money. And they're honest about that. They're not a nonprofit. They're a for-profit. They're in it to make money. They they offer an incredible product that has really set the, the bar in college sports broadcast media. You're benefiting from that and you live and you die with it. So I'm not criticizing ESPN. They're doing what they're doing. They're out in the free market doing what they need to do to survive in advance. And they've done it very, very well. But again, it's going to be interesting because this really is a a different kind of infighting when you have this direct conflict between one of the beneficiaries of this massive enterprise turning on another critical actor in the enterprise. And uh, that's unusual. It's quite unusual. So I'm not going to be following this with really sharp eyes. I'm going to sort of pay attention. If there's something big that comes up, I'll talk about it. But I don't want to get sidetracked and start following this story to the exclusion of really the fundamental purposes of the podcast. And I really think we need to refocus and keep our eye on what's happening in the Senate. And, and then I also want to be checking in on this House case out in California because I think that's an important case as well. The other thing I want to fold into some of the discussion about where the NCAA sits relative to the Power Five and where they sit with Congress is that the NCAA has been very effective at making it seem as if the sky is falling for them financially. 
And I spent some time a couple of days ago looking at their most recent consolidated financial statements. And when you take a sharp pencil to that and you have to pull pluck out information there because those documents are drafted in a way that they disguise a lot of the underlying transactions. And again, unless Congress starts coming in and issuing subpoenas to get at the heart of the NCAA's revenue streams and how it spends its money and how it moves its money, we're never going to know. But in these consolidated financial statements, you really see that the NCAA didn't take the financial hit that they claimed that they took. When you look at their overall revenue picture and then their reduced expenses, I don't think the NCAA is in in as bad a position as they want the public to believe. And that's important going forward, too, because one of their primary themes has been oh, the sky's falling, and frivolous litigation, and antitrust litigation. Yeah, every lawsuit that's ever been filed uh, against the NCAA is frivolous. It's just frivolous, uh, except when the United States Supreme Court says in a unanimous decision that it was meritorious. But that's been one of their go-to cards in the Senate. And I think that deserves a little peek as well. And one of the benefits to the, the story on conference realignment is it really does put into perspective some of the things that have happened in the last month. And Mark Emmert's suggestion that he was just going to get ahead of the curve to remake college sports is just another NCAA smokescreen. And so is the Austin decision and this nil compensation issue. So all those have been overblown. And I think that a lot of the dynamics that are playing out right now at the business level were going to happen regardless of what happened in Austin and with name, image, and likeness. And the evidence as it's coming in seems to support that more and more. So we're just getting more propaganda from the NCAA. It's what they do. And it's really all they have left now. And of course, one of the biggest pieces of their propaganda mosaic is the integrity of college sports. So as all this drama plays out with Realignment 2.0 and the mudslinging begins in earnest, I want you to just put that in the framework of the integrity of college sports. All right, so let's wrap this thing up. Thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.